We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a young, rising content maker joining us this week. He is a 22-year-old FIDE master from Ukraine, who these days is a student at Webster University. Um, he's got two out of three IM norms that were achieved in 2019. I have, a feeling, I have a feeling he'll be working on his third one as soon as we are allowed to do such things here in the U.S. He was the Ukrainian champion for the um, under-20-year-olds in 2018. Um, he's an experienced and highly reviewed coach on Lee Chess and the author of lots of stuff. He's the author of some chessable courses, including Unleash the Bull, a full repertoire for Black and the, ex the Accelerated Rosalimo, the Accelerated Queen's Indian Defense, and the brand new one, the Dynamic Italian Game. He has his book... Um, about Double King Pawn, Unleash the Bull was also published with Thinkers Publishing. Uh, and he is also out with Squeezing the King's Indian Defense, along with Semko Semkov. So uh, shockingly accomplished for just a 22-year-old. And here joining us now is Yuri Krikun. Yuri, how are you? 
Uh, hi, Ben. Doing quite, great. A, quite a resume for a 22-year-old. Yuri, how do you do it? Uh, thank you. Well, in the first place, I guess it just comes from being very passionate about chess and about teaching chess. Um, and secondly, you know, <laughs> COVID lately messed up everyone's plans. I guess there is not many, you know, not many over-the-board game opportunities that we could, that we could look into. So you just have no choice but to author a lot of stuff. Yeah, I've, uh, it's, it's never been easier for me to get a podcast guest, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So indeed, it's been yeah. a very productive year, yeah, due to, due to COVID mostly. And, and, oh, and, go you're, ahead, and you're in school as well, Yuri, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. I'm doing my master's. Actually, it's my last year, year of master's here at Webster University. So now it got a little busier now that the fall semester began a couple okay. weeks ago. And are you guys doing actual in-person classes or no? Oh, actually, yeah, actually not at all. We are we are meeting online. So yeah, actually, uh, I had well <laughs> a pretty a, a pretty hectic couple of last weeks because initially I actually went back to Ukraine, back to Europe in March for for holiday, and I thought I would be back in states in a week or two, but then the whole thing started and all the borders got closed around the world and I couldn't return. So actually uh, in March, April and May, I was living a bit of a nightlife because I basically was having online classes in the US when in Ukraine it was two in the morning until 6 a.m. in the morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah, uh, <laughs> that was over and summer was pretty relaxing. And actually I was totally sure I would not return in uh, August because you know, even back in April, Massachusetts, for example, or Harvard announced they would not hold any in-person classes until January. But And I was totally sure this would not happen here, but I was told it would a couple of weeks before the university, um, b b before the new term. And then I bought tickets and was about to fly in. And then a couple of days in advance, I was told that all the classes will be hosted online, actually. But I still decided to fly over. Okay. Yeah, it's it's such a mess in these universities. I mean, I feel like no one knows what to do. I mean, we're all in uncharted waters, but the universities in particular, I mean, they're, you know, they need to pay the bills. They need to be able to charge tuition. So I know there was a strong push to actually um, offer the, all that live college has to offer. But yeah, I think uh, it's better to be cautious. Um, so Yuri, what made you decide to come back to St. Louis after all, despite no real classes, no in-person classes? Well, actually, numerous factors, to be honest. So in the first place, I am on a chess scholarship here at Webster. And as you might know, our team is, well, has been for many years, number one rated uh, team in the nation. So first of all, obviously, being a part of a team is, you know, a huge privilege, a very cool thing, a very enhancing thing from the from, from all learning perspectives, because I have uh, eight very strong grandmasters around me right now. Well, but obviously it's some responsibilities. Obviously you have to train and you have to contribute to the team as well. So I thought, well, it would definitely be desirable that I'm around. Then, uh, well, I actually didn't really want to stay away, stay awake at 6 a.m. anymore. So I thought it would be appropriate to change the time zone. And yeah, I already had certain plans here. Yeah, I mean, was missing some friends, was hoping to do some traveling around and so on and so forth. So I would say a couple of factors. Okay, that makes sense. And I've, of course, interviewed other... Um esteemed members of the Webster University chess team and alumni and so on over the years. But uh, who is there right now? Any what? Who are the strongest players at Webster right now? Uh, well, we have numerous very strong grandmasters. 
For example, well, last year, actually, arguably our strongest player, Ilya Nishnik, who is also Ukrainian, graduated. But now we still have a number of very strong players. For example, Lazaro Brozon, who mm -hmm. was, I believe, number 25 in the world at some point in his prime. Uh, Alexander Landerman, one of the strongest US grandmasters. Uh, for example, my roommate Peter Prohaska, a very strong grandmaster from Hungary, and numerous other players. Aram Akobian, for example, a grandmaster from Armenia. John Bork, a grandmaster from the US. We have uh, Emilia Cordova from Peru, uh, Yuneski Quesada from Cuba, and yeah, <laughs> as you can see, a huge list of very strong players. Yeah, and it's pretty cool that, again, as with chess, that, that people come from all over the world, that it's such an international um, international base of players. Oh, totally. And actually, it's very, very encouraging, in my opinion, to see that chess, because see, I, uh, well, I mean, top-level chess is definitely a very exciting thing, but actually, I find even more value in other opportunities that chess provides. When we speak, for example, about kids who learn so much from chess and manage to, you know, learn how to make decisions, learn responsibility, right? Learn how to learn and so on and so forth. And also it's very, in my opinion, appealing to see that so many talented players, international masters, grandmasters get an opportunity to come live here, study here, possibly stay here, which is definitely a very cool experience in its own. So in my opinion, yeah, it's very, very inspiring to see such rapid development of collegiate chess here in the United States. Yeah, and I've noticed in just in the interviews that I've conducted that there seems to be a kind of pipeline from Ukraine, um, <laughs> and you, you're you being from, and of course Ukraine obviously has had countless uh, incredible chess players over the years, but now it seems that a lot of them are doing their studies in the U.S. What what was it for you, Yuri, that made you think about coming to Webster? Oh uh, well, actually, also numerous factors, I would say. So yeah, in the first place, uh, maybe I would go a little bit back in terms of. Uh, my major. So actually, when I enrolled in university back in Ukraine, I was studying translation. My major was translation from French and English languages. And actually, well, the main purpose was, so initially, I actually started playing chess quite late when I was 12 or 13. Or I mean, rather, I've learned how to play early, but then I started training quite late. And when I was getting in college, I was still hoping to get <coughs> to play chess quite seriously. So I wanted to choose a major which would, you know, allow me to have quite a lot of time and allow me to travel and so on. Uh, but later, actually, I was thinking of changing majors quite drastically. So first of all, I couldn't really do that in Ukraine based on our system. So I was looking to study abroad. But also numerous friends of mine, indeed, as you've mentioned, all Ukrainians have also moved to the United States, you know, two or three years before I did. So I was definitely looking into this direction. And <laughs> there are definitely so many good colleges here. But eventually I found Webster to be the best fit. Good. Yeah. And of course, I'm guessing you got some kind of uh, financial hype help, which certainly doesn't hurt, right? Yeah, definitely. Totally. Especially in America, given the cost of education. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that, that's that's the topic of another podcast. But yeah, it's it's a mess. But it's good that you're able to utilize what you've achieved in chess, rated 2500 USCF, um, by the way, and uh, put it to use. And of course, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of it seems like a lot of strong players, such as yourself, speak a lot of languages. So, so which languages did you do you speak, Yuri? Uh, so, yeah, so I speak Russian and Ukrainian natively. Um, also, I, sp I happen to speak some English. Uh, I've studied French at university, and I know a little bit of Latvian. And right now, especially <laughs> inspired by example of my roommate, I would like to learn some Spanish. My roommate has been spending an incredible amount of time studying Spanish right now, and I definitely feel like I would like to do that too sometime soon. 
Yeah, Spanish is so practical. I mean, other than English, it's probably it's got to be the most practical language. Um, and there's some great places to visit. Speaking of travel um, around South America and Spain, of course. Oh, totally, completely. Well, actually, the ambitious plan is long run would be to learn both Spanish and German, because those are some, you know, Central European languages, and I already speak French as well, which would make it easier. So yeah, I guess the process was more, you know, hesitation, which one to start with. <laughs> so yeah, but I've decided that I should, I should study Spanish in the first place. Excellent. Sounds like you could have some fun chess tourism in your future. <laughs> Hopefully so. Okay, but Yuri, let's get let's dig into all this chess work. I mean, it, it's so much; it's super impressive. But the the one that I've been checking out is the dynamic Italian game, which it turns out is secretly about the Evans Gambit. Although I understand why you named it otherwise, because of course you've got to um, tangle with the two knights defense too. Mm -hmm. um, so I I know you you delve into this a bit in the intro video that you do for Chessable about how you came about selecting this opening once you knew you wanted something to combat double king pawn, but for our listeners who haven't had a chance to check that out, could you could you give us a bit of the backstory? Uh, yeah, of course. Actually, the backstory, to be honest, about most of my repertoires that I've already produced and that I'll produce in the future really flows from my teaching experience. Because obviously, well, I mean, how do you select, how do you help your students select repertoires? You practice, you try, you fail, sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't. But I've just found that the Evans Gambit specifically and, I mean, generally speaking, many dynamic variations really help um, even not as much, you know, get an opening advantage specifically, but develop the uh, feel for initiative in general and develop the way you look at the game of chess. And I found that several students of mine who've played the Evans, either at some point or who, who keep doing it for a pretty long time, have benefited greatly from it. And... Actually, back when I was starting to teach the events to some students, I was mostly thinking of it as of, well, all right, that's interesting, perhaps not too challenging theoretically, but we'll just have a game and you'll learn how to attack. But actually, lately, perhaps about half a year ago, or maybe a little more, I was just looking into it very deeply with uh, two students of mine who are both very strong, who are actually competing for some national titles in their um, countries in, on junior level. And I've just realized, well, the appearance of Halsey Zero has changed so much and there are so many rich and interesting positions. And I've actually realized, well, yeah, I mean, Black literally has no advantage and he has to be very careful. And actually, I've even mentioned, I even felt somewhat bad about not treating it as seriously when I was uh, writing my E4, E5 Black Repertoire, but I'll update it soon, actually. <laughs> so I've just figured, well, the opening is so rich, so interesting, and most importantly, so helpful to your chest in general. So why not? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's... that's um. That's an astute analysis on your part. I mean, a couple things I'd like to highlight. Number one is just like uh, last week's, or it'll be two weeks ago's guest, uh, Stacia Pugh mentioned how her coaches, and she's about, I think, 1700, and her coaches wanted her to, to develop her dynamic play and suggested that she played Gambit-type openings. Uh, so Evan's Gambit is certainly a good fit for that. And of course, also, as you say in, in your video, I mean, E5 is obviously a strong response to E4. So it's tough to ask for an advantage no matter what you do, but at least with the Evans Gambit, um, you're getting some initiative. And I've I've mentioned a couple times in recent interviews, I'm kind of casting about for what to play against Double King Pawn myself. Um, and it's, it's now added to the short list of uh, possibilities. I mean, I, I'll be digging more into your course in coming weeks. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, obviously, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. Some people would not maybe. I mean, especially the stronger you get, the more you get to know yourself as a player. You need to understand that some positions, well, they may be very good, but they just don't fit your style, for example. So some players maybe, you know, would not like the sharp positions as much. Some would prefer some positional struggle. Some would prefer dynamic play. But yeah, obviously, you know, the very good thing is that this is not an inferior choice in any way because you don't have an, an advantage in either case. And I feel that with this repertoire, you definitely don't pose less problems than you would with some other ones, such as with, say, Ray Lopez or Quiet Italian or Scotch or whatever it is. Um, and yeah, I definitely think that, see, while Chessable has like a very wide audience, which is good, and I've already heard about this course and about my other courses, both from players rated, say, 1,200 or 800 and from Grandmasters. But we need to understand that generally, right, chess is, is, is the way chess ratings work and the way chess world works. It's more of a pinnacle with obviously the, you know, wider bottom, right? So obviously we have way more players rated 1,500 or 1,800 than Grandmasters. And obviously for players rated 1,500, it's way more important to develop their chess overall rather than seek any theoretical improvements on, on move 20. That doesn't matter at all at that point. So I feel like this is ju- yeah, just such an amazing choice for most of the audience, and most likely for <laughs> almost all of it, I would say. But yeah, it just feels like a very good, like a very good practical choice. So yeah, I, it's pretty convincing to me. Um, so have you tried it in your own games? Um, do, you, do you spar with the computer? Do you hop on and play Blitz with it? Do you get to test out? I mean, you're writing so many courses. You must know a lot of openings now, but is, is the Evans in particular something you've had a chance to, to practice? Yeah, actually quite a lot. Actually, in fact, I've played um, a friend of mine rated 2600 a couple of days ago. We've played pretty numerous, I would say, Blitz games. And the thing is that, yeah, somehow... Most players, for very obvious reasons, don't study it as deeply because they have more serious problems, especially at the higher level. So actually, he was not that well prepared. And well, I, I don't necessarily have to specify how the games ended overall. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, yeah, even though it was not that bad. But yeah, he definitely felt like he was under some pretty serious pressure. And I definitely played it quite a lot online. And I've definitely studied and analyzed a lot of games of my students. So yeah, I feel like <laughs> I have quite a substantial amount of experience with it. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's fun that it's just been around for so long, and um, you know, so much history attached to the Evans Gambit. So um, I'll look forward to checking it out. And what about, of course, um, any Italian player needs to be ready for the two knights defense. So um, what what did you end up um, prescribing against that? And what would you say the theoretical state of that is? Because if I'm not mistaken, I believe that's what uh, Jan Gustafsson recommends, felt your fellow chessable author um, against the Italian. Yeah, uh, generally speaking, I felt that, well, obviously, there is no advantage in either line, but somehow the Evans was almost unexplored, and I felt that whenever I was analyzing it, you know, very seriously and deeply, it was possible to find, to come up with novelties even on move 6, 7 in many lines, that many positions were so fresh, and instead in knight g5, knight f6, knight g5, well, the positions are definitely way more researched, and you definitely have to know a lot more. But the reason why I decided to recommend knight g5 in the first place is, well, actually, it's pretty simple. So for one, there's not actually that many other dynamic continuations that we have after knight f6. And obviously, to just play, say, d3 would be quite pointless because then black can just play bishop c5 and we just got kicked out of our repertoire against the Evans. I mean, against bishop c5. So I was looking for something dynamic and knight g5 is definitely a very ambitious move. And I thought that 
at the lower levels, it would be a very good idea to play Knight g5 simply because many players would not really know what to do. They would have very superficial knowledge, might fall for some early traps, and so on and so forth. And that's also a very dynamic way to play. And on the other hand, at the higher level, I feel that the rising positions are actually also very interesting, and I think that the um, state of theory will change quite a lot uh, shortly. So, for example, Gustafsson. Well, Gustafsson's book, of course, I would say was the most difficult thing to challenge because I was mm-hmm. definitely looking not to just say, all right, well, that's an equal position, just go ahead and play. I was trying to actually contribute somehow to the state of theory, but I believe I did manage. Uh, so speaking specifically of Jan's lines, I believe that we have um, we have two suggestions in the course. One uh, leads to a position with two extra pawns for us, where Jan cuts his analysis short and says black is fine, and I agree with him. But I think Black has to know quite a lot more. And if he does, we have we always have a draw, so we never risk. And I find it to be quite a good practical outcome. And another line is very sharp and very murky. And honestly, maybe I would be even a little scared to play like this with White. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, Jan doesn't cover it. So I think it gives, it, it gives plenty of fighting room for anyone who is looking for a very complicated position. Okay. Well, generally, I mean, it sounds pretty interesting, sounds pretty deep. And yeah, no surprise that that what Jan found, I mean, he's obviously world-renowned for his uh, opening knowledge. So no surprise that that what he came up with is a tough nut to crack. But but I mean, it sounds pretty interesting. And again, as you say, for for the, the bulk of the players, it's probably like way more than they would need to remember, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. And this is what makes writing such a course both very interesting and challenging because you're trying to both deliver to the audience where people need just explanations and really almost no theory, where just saying, all right, so here we have this and this and that idea. Just go ahead, play an attack and see what you can do. And at the same time, writing for the audience of title players is you know, quite a difficult task when you, you're asked to combine it. But yeah, indeed, because many people ask, did you try to tackle this book or this repertoire? And obviously you have to, but at the same time, it's important to understand. And I think many club players get somewhat scared when they see the number of lines or words of instruction, you know, or depth. They need to understand it's not really for them. So actually, in this regard, I wanted to mention, I've done something. I'm not sure if other chessable authors have ever done this. I think they, I mean, someone might, and I think more definitely will. So what I did is that um, in the beginning of the course, I wrote a sort of a how to use the chord, uh, course uh, manual where I said, well, if you're rated, let's say, 1300, start with this chapter and this one, and don't you ever dare to touch some other chapter. And, <laughs> and instead, if you're rated, say, 1800, feel free to skip this, but feel free to pay more attention to that. Or if you're 2200, then do this and that. And I definitely think, well, it's possible to read this course like a book from page one to the last page. However... I feel that many people would actually really appreciate some guidance, you know, on what to start with and how to work through it. So I hoped it would be beneficial. Yeah, I saw that you did that. And you guys know that I love Chessable, but that is something I've encountered as I've been learning openings in the past few months is uh, I I especially, as I've mentioned before, I love the the quick starter or even the short and sweet, the free versions of their courses. Um, And quick starter is especially helpful because that's like, the condensed version of what the author thinks you're most likely to play against. But mm-hmm. even beyond that, sometimes I just like, if I were studying on my own on chess base or something like that, I would just start with the main line. And sometimes on chessable, it can be hard to discern what, what the main line might be. So I definitely think that's a good idea. And hopefully other chessable authors will, will run with it as chessable continues to make um, more and more improvements of an already 
great product. Yeah, I definitely think so. And generally, it's clearly very noticeable how much has changed during even the last year, half a year. Uh, some authors have started mentioning, say, what uh, you know, what other authors' books or products they have tackled. Some authors have mentioned, I don't know what myth- mythologies they have used, and so on and so forth. And generally, obviously, as most good ideas, this ideas pick up in popularity and eventually they just become universally used. So I definitely hope that, yeah, this would contribute to other courses as well and make the learning process more intuitive for more users. Okay. Yeah. And Yuri, speaking of Chessable, we're going to take a quick break to hear about them. Um, and then I want to ask you a question or two about engines. As always, Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. In addition to FM Yuri Kraken's highly worthwhile courses, they've got tons of new courses coming out constantly. Whether you're looking for a particular opening, looking to drill tactics, want to work on your end games, it's likely Chessable has something to help you out. And of course, their proprietary move trainer technology helps you remember everything that you learn, utilizing space repetition to test you until you've got it down cold. They've got free courses like friend of the show FM Camille Plicta just released a short and sweet course on the classic Budapest Gambit. So, so much stuff to check out. Go to chessable.com and see what they have to offer. Back to the interview. And we're back. So Yuri, you've obviously done a ton of research for this course and your other courses and your books as well. And of course, I always enjoy when I, when I talk to you authors who are sort of, um, at the cutting edge of engine use, hearing what what your approach is like, what your methodology is like. So which which engines did you primarily use for your most recent work? Yeah, well, I think the primary question here is even not what engines to use, but what, so I mean, what, what, what computer to use? Because obviously, if, if your computer is 10 times as powerful, then most likely, you know, any engine choice would still do just fine. So that's, I think, the first secret. You need to use a very powerful computer or cloud or whatever it is. But obviously, in order to, I think, in order to write precisely and to come up with a lot of new ideas, you need to be very careful with the engine use. You definitely need to combine because several engines have some very clear, distinctive advantages, such as, for example, Stockfish, which is capable of calculating extremely well and navigating tactically complex positions extremely, you know, extremely extremely well but at the same time very often it's i think very superficial in terms of evaluation very often it changes its evaluation as you just input the move it's suggesting and so on and so forth very often it believes that some drone endgame could be plus one so that is definitely a bit of a downside or instead for example lc zero which has definitely made you know a bit of a revolution in chess lately is way more um suited for human analysis because it it's, it's, it's a very human-type engine, and it definitely enhanced our understanding of several positional concepts. But at the same time, if you are analyzing a sharp position, it may not be your best friend necessarily. But generally, I think that any author, and I mean not author, just any analyst who wants to get the uh, you know perfect result has to simply try to combine. You just use a few engines at a time, and you compare the evaluations, and obviously... If you see very different suggestions or even very different evaluations, it's definitely a good opportunity to stop for a bit and try to understand what's going on. Okay. And when you say, so there's Alpha Zero, but there's also Leela Zero. Um, which one are you using primarily for, or both for your uh, work? So yeah, I'm using Alpha Zero, uh, Leela Zero. And actually there is a similar engine now, which is called Fat Freeze as well. 
But I believe Alsa Zero is uh, the product that DeepMind created to, <laughs> to beat Stockfish. And it's not really yeah. commonly used, but uh, Lila Zero is the engine that was created for the, you know, how the external chess users, so to speak. Good. Yeah. I was just, I thought maybe, yeah, I was just making sure you didn't have secret access to Alpha Zero. I know <laughs> well, that. Yeah. M- maybe we just leaked some secret information. Maybe I do. <laughs> uh oh. That would be amazing. But yeah, Lila Zero, of course, uh, strong in its own right. And, and Yuri, I, we recently came out in the past couple of weeks that, and listeners, I know it can be a lot to keep track of. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's pretty interesting stuff, as uh, Patrick Wolf talked about on the show about five, six weeks ago. I mean, it's just amazing that these engines show no signs of slowing down in terms of their progress. And now apparently there's a, a newer, stronger stockfish that incorporates uh, neural networks as well. So, Yuri, have you caught wind of this? Uh, yeah, indeed. The stockfish, I believe, called new, like, and NUE. Yeah, indeed, it, it, it was released quite recently, and it's definitely better than the usual Stockfish. I believe that there have been already some matches, some tests. Um, however, I believe that Lilo Zero still, still remains the best engine out there. So I believe that what they try to do with Stockfish is create some sort of a you know, balance, some sort of a nice sweet spot between the computational ability of Stockfish and positional understanding of Leo. So this is more of a in-between sort of engine. And I definitely think it would be very useful to give it a try as well. And in fact, I did analyze with it a little bit. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, I cannot say I've analyzed with it as much lately to actually judge. But yeah, it just feels more of a more of a mild, soft solution where it's not as optimistic and as superficial as Stockfish. But at the same time, perhaps and not as sharp as it. So yeah, they're just trying to, I think, to move towards a neural uh, networks type of direction. Okay, well, you made me feel better about the fact that I haven't tried to track it down yet. I'll just stick with my Lila Zero and my other Stockfish, and I, I, should, I should be able to get by with the 3500 engine, don't you think? Definitely. Actually, <laughs> I think the best piece of advice I can give to most um, club players I think I think that's what Kasparov said once, or I mean, maybe I would elaborate on it a little bit. So I think he said the most important secret to know about chess engines is when to use one and when not to. And I mean, I, I tell my students, well, the most important secret is not to use it at all. <laughs> when, I mean, the main problem I think nowadays is that people, well, there's so much information and not just in chess, so many books, videos, whatever educational type of content you can find on any topic you want. And unfortunately, often people can just, you know, start droning in all this content and all this uh, implicity. And with the engines, I feel it's a bit of the same thing because many club players just play a game and then just put the computer on and just believe that they found some universal truths or now that they, they got to understand everything about the position, even though really oftentimes the computer input is not relevant at all from the human perspective. You know, we need to understand what types of moves we can actually see and why some positions are evaluated the way they are. So I always recommend my students to try to make sure they analyze their games as much as they can without the engine. And only then they compare the conclusions they arrive at with the engine suggestions. And I mean, of course, we analyze the games with them uh, as well. But yeah, generally speaking, I think it's just important because obviously chess ultimately is a game of decision-making. So you want to be able to make good decisions, not know about them, you know? So it's very important, I think, to train your decision-making process as much as you can. And analysis happens to be a perfect tool. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's good advice. I mean, of course, have, talking to people about chess improvement every week, we hear different people with different perspectives. But I, 
I think at the least, as you say, it makes sense to first generate your own thoughts and maybe then look at an, an engine. But but I'm looking at an engine right away. Maybe not be maybe will not be as helpful. But Yuri, as someone who's a, a pretty pretty young man, and as you mentioned, bit of a late starter in chess. By the way, it's super impressive that you've gotten to to 2500 USCF after starting at a uh, 12 and 13, um, 12 or 13 uh, with with starting in earnest at least. Um, so what was your approach being that you're kind of from the engine generation? Were you someone that used computers a lot and what sort of like, what, what was it that helped you improve so quickly? Yeah, well, actually, I think it was, well, just to clarify, I didn't learn how to play chess when I was 12 or 13. I've actually learned when I was like three or four, but I just never played it seriously. I played it maybe within family or friends, but I've never studied a single piece of literature or anything. I was not sure if even it existed, probably. <laughs> but yeah, I started training, actually, going to the chess club when I was 12 or 13. So I think I, yeah, I mean, this is the main driving force is definitely passion and, you know, a lot of time. Because I feel that the main constraint of adult improvers is actually not that you cannot learn once you know you you reach certain age, but the main concern is that people are either very busy or they're getting distracted or they just have a lot of you know other things on their mind. So it's just very difficult to stay focused and very uh, and uh, devote all of your energy to it. So yeah, I would say definitely most of all it's just passion and interest and a lot of spare time. Uh, but at the same time, I would actually say I was probably barely using any engines until I was maybe rated 2000 feeder or something like this. I was, I think, mostly studying with books and analyzing. Yeah, and actually, that's, <laughs> I would need to, to, you know, do a big shout out to my coaches who taught me to, to work in this way. Because I feel that uh, indeed nowadays so many players just get too excited about engines. And their coaches also lead them to this kind of misunderstanding of how it works. And uh, that's a bit of a problem in the chess world. So I think I was quite lucky to both not be, you know, too uncomfortable with the engines, but at the same time, not start using them since the age of five or something. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it does sound like your coaches gave you gave you some good advice. Um, what? So what resources did they recommend? What was the most formative for you? Like, is there a favorite book or... Um, a particularly um, insightful nugget that you got from one of your coaches. Um, what what sticks out when you reflect on on your chess learning experiences? Mm, it's actually an interesting question because indeed I've read definitely quite a lot. There are definitely some classic pieces of literature, such as say my system by Nimsovich, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, I think that what's really important is uh, is trying to process less information, but um works i mean well it's very important to be learning actively i think the active learning approach is really what defines your success because what happens quite a lot is that people read a lot and people try to read as fast as they can and obtain as much information as they can but at the same time their kind of skill set doesn't match up and you know doesn't catch up with their with the amount of their knowledge so i think the most important part probably was just this idea that it was very important to think critically in any situation. And actually, one very, I think, useful piece of advice, which I also give to, well, of course, mostly to my stronger students, right, I'd say 2000 L and above, to try to challenge the authors. Whenever you're reading something, whenever you're watching something, it's normal to be asking why and to be disagreeing. I mean, not disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing, but if the text doesn't make sense to you, you don't need to just process it through and remember it as is, you know? It's very important to to be, I think, critical towards the information you're taking in. Yeah, that's very good advice. And it's advice I've mentioned a couple of times because um, 
uh, Alex Yermolinsky in the Road to Chess Improvement says, always remember any opening move you make. So I think of it a lot, Yuri, but I have to admit, sometimes when I'm studying and it's always like reams of theory, you know, I'm chessable, I'll, I'll wake up to 600 new moves to review every day or something. So it can be tough, especially if you're like on your phone or something and there's some move that you're like, well, I don't really know why that move is played but I don't really feel like investigating right now. You know, it can be tough, especially again, as like an adult improver to find the balance between uh, doing the right thing and, you know, just getting your work done. Yeah, I totally know. It's actually, I feel that, (laughs) especially for players who work a lot on their own and who's, you know, balance between say, meeting a call, I mean, who who say, well, if for example, you have two hours of weeks that you devote to chess and you just work with a coach for two hours, probably you don't have any headache deciding what you need to do. But if you meet coach once a week for an hour or two and you spend say 20 hours working on chess, then actually I think that, well, one of the key, you know, things that the coach should do is give you the direction, but also how to say, restrict you from obtaining information you don't need at the moment. Mm -hmm. Because indeed, many things you yeah you you just need to you just need to be fully aware of what you are learning at the moment and why specifically are you learning it at the moment because oftentimes i hear questions from my students such as would it be useful for me to read this book and well you know really no matter who this question is coming from and what their strength is and what the book is well most likely the answer is yes right i mean how can it hurt to read something but the real question i think that should be asked is this the most useful thing you can do with your time right now because, well, it's definitely not going to hurt to study any opening or to study some position with, I don't know, uh, in, in, in a rook and game where you're two pawns down. But th- is this something you really need right now? Do you, Is this why you lose games? Is this why you don't go, you know, a step or two up the rating ladder? So I think, yeah, the very important and useful thing is to have someone next to you who is more experienced and who would not, of course, do the work instead of you, but who would help you not do the work you don't need. Yeah, that is excellent advice, especially these days. As you say, you're churning out a lot of content. I can't keep up with all the authors coming out with books in terms of uh, booking interviews, books and chessable courses and, and so on. So yeah, there's just information overload for everyone. And it's and I think the quality of it is better than ever, but that doesn't mean that we have more time to consume it. So it's definitely a tricky issue. So so Yuri, you're, you've Again, you've got great reviews on on the Lee Chess Coaches page. Uh, people speak highly of your teaching abilities. It seems like you're pretty busy. Are there any particular books or or remedies that you find recommending to your students over and over again? Uh, well, it would definitely, I think, depend on the level. But actually, indeed, for example, one thing that I think most people uh, think uh, in a somewhat funny way of is that I have a very uh, I have a series of um, tactical kind of chess, um, well, 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 what to call them in English? Are there, are there books or are there even some sort of exercise books? Yeah, so anyways, there's a very good series of tactical puzzles, uh, which is actually written and available only in the Russian language. So <laughs> whenever, whenever, yeah, and I mean, the thing is, uh, the, the series has, I think, six or seven volumes in it. So there are puzzles for very beginners and puzzles for actually like titled players. So I, I know that most of my students probably find it quite funny or surprising, especially Americans when it also, oh, you know, actually now I'm going to send you a book in the Russian language, <laughs> but don't worry, you don't need to read it. I mean, just puzzles. But indeed, for example, this series is definitely very helpful. As for, as for um, some kind of more reading sort of advice, it would definitely depend greatly on the level, but there are definitely some very classical pieces of literature. And, well, mostly I would say those would be either 
um, exercises or um, games, kind of serious and, you know, annotated games. So, for example, I've definitely learned a lot, and I definitely tend to recommend this book a lot to the higher level of students, Zurich 1953. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely a very classical piece of literature. And definitely, I would strongly suggest such things as, let's say, Endgame Strategy by Sherishevsky. But that, again, would do, I think, for the higher level of players. And uh, let's say Yusupov's books, uh, he actually has, I believe, nine books in the series uh, published by Quality Chess are very good as well. And there are definitely multiple sources. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> but probably the list could just keep going and going and going and going. <laughs> yeah, definitely classics. And Yusupov series, of course, available on Chessable, at least the first few volumes are. And do you do you have any recommendations that you, you find yourself making for, for lower-rated students? I actually think Endgame, uh, Endgame Strategy is reasonably accessible for lots of levels, although certainly like even someone I'm rated like 2150, someone at my level can certainly benefit from it as well. But um, for any for lower any lower rated player, um, class player listening, do you have any particular recommendations? Oh, totally, yeah. Well, I would say that generally speaking, the value of information is not as high at lower levels, meaning that at lower levels, the way the games are mostly decided is, well, tactical blunders, which is quite obvious. While on higher levels, starting from some point, say, you know, 14, 15, 1600, obviously people are mostly getting outplayed positionally, and they still do tend to blunder, just as grandmasters, everyone tends to blunder, right? However, obviously games are more more and more decided by uh, based on the positional understanding and knowledge of typical ideas. So the very main definite piece of advice for players at lower levels is to solve a lot of puzzles. And... Those, I mean, it's definitely important to choose the right type of puzzles, not too easy, not too difficult. People should not get unmotivated when they just fail for 10 times in a row, but also people shouldn't be solving them within 10 seconds. So I would definitely think that polishing your practical skills is very important. Um, and actually, for example, a very new tool, uh, which is available to, say, very beginners, are these um, training positions on Leechas. I believe if you go to Leechas, you can hit learn, and then there's a button practice which allows you to practice, you know, starting from how pieces move to some tactical patterns. So that would definitely do for very beginner's level. And if we are talking about someone who is already, you know, aware of how pieces move and doesn't blunder as much, and at the same time is not good enough to, say, start working through Yusuf of series, for example, I would definitely say there are books like, for example, Logical Chess uh, by, uh, I believe the author is Irving Chernev. And yeah. then there are books like, I don't know, Reassess Your Chess, by Silman and so on and so forth. But yeah, indeed, the list keeps going and going and going. <laughs> but I believe that at lower levels, the value of practicing and very importantly, not playing any fast controls, bullet or blitz is a big no-no, is a big taboo at this point. So playing the slower time controls and analyzing your games and solving a ton is most valuable combined with some reading, but not a huge amount. Okay, yeah, excellent timeless advice. Yeah, and logical chess move by move is one I find myself recommending a lot as well. I think move by move generally can can help a lot when you're newer to chess because so much there's so much that authors often just leave unexplained in in other types of books. But um, but Yor, I want to hear a bit about your own chess. So two IM norms, and now you can't can't chase down that third norm right now. Is that something you're thinking about a lot? Are you training right now? What what's going on with your own game? Yeah, actually, it's kind of interesting. So in fact, what happened? I think there is a bit of a misinformation. So I got my first norm actually back in 2017, 
Oh, okay. My mistake. Um, yeah, but uh, I believe by Zenvolt, not to say I did not deserve it, but I mean, I was playing a sync way weaker <laughs> than, you know, a year ago or two. Then, uh, yeah, than a year later. Um, and in that year, I actually had quite a huge jump, I think from 2200 to 2350 or something like this. And I've missed I am Norm, I think, that year and next year, probably by half a point in like 10 tournaments. So literally every single tournament, half a point was missing. And then I got the second norm last year in Spice Cup, which is actually a tournament organized by Susan Polker here in St. Louis. And I almost even got a Grandmaster norm somehow very unexpectedly. And I mean, it's mostly unexpectedly because previously I had final exams and I had so much teaching and I was recording this uh, Unleash the Bull course. And actually it's funny because I recorded Unleash the Bull and then I had five black games and every single game had E4, E5 and every single game I've used my repertoire. And in fact, I even remember finishing some recording some chapter like two days before and uh, then I had the position from this chapter on like move 15 or 16 when I cut my analysis in my game so yeah anyways this was a very good tournament and then I was very very uh, motivated to gun my last norm and I had another shot in um, an invitational IAM tournament here in St. Louis too and I was actually training hard for it but I believe I was maybe putting too much pressure on myself and I failed quite miserably and then we had a Pan American Intercollegiate Championship in December in Charlotte. And yeah, no chess, chess whatsoever since then. I've been training, well, a bit. I would not say a huge amount, or I would not say as much as I would if I had a tournament just in front of me. Uh, but also, I'm not forgetting chess definitely by any means. And definitely spending a lot of time around chess, you know, writing or teaching strong students. Because obviously, if you have a student rated, say, 2100, well, Obviously, you're better as a player than him, but you need to stay quite sharp. You don't want to <laughs> lose your authority, so to speak, by blundering, you know, over and over. But um, actually, interestingly, I very surprisingly am about to play in the over-the-board tournament in three weeks from now. Oh, okay. What are you? What were you playing? Yeah, so it would be an I Am Norm Invitational in Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was talking with Naroditsky about how they're already running tournaments. So that's great that they're giving you an opportunity. They do a great job. Yeah, so I'm quite excited, actually. I still have a few deadlines uh, that I'm about to complete very shortly, perhaps by the beginning of next week. But then, yeah, I plan on focusing quite a lot on my own chess and <laughs> trying to get the last norm finally. Excellent. Yeah. And by the time this interview comes out, we're recording about 10 days before it'll probably be released. So listeners can check for check for your pursuit of that norm about a, a week after the interview comes out. So that'll that'll be fun to uh, to track. But Yuri, with the with the trajectory you're on, uh, I, it seems like just um, I don't want you to relax too much, but it seems like you have pretty good chances over time of uh, getting that last norm, uh, especially with your work ethic. Well, I definitely hope so. Thank you. Even though at the moment, I definitely would say I'm way more uh, focused on my students and on teaching and somehow, um, cr well, creating chess content and generally speaking, educating people to chess and introducing people to chess and making people excited about chess. And actually, among some of the latest endeavors, I, I've tried running a YouTube channel actually a bit over a year ago. But then somehow I got very busy and never returned to it. But now I plan on restarting again. I've uplo up uploaded like one video last week. But I definitely plan on uploading a lot more on a consistent basis starting from the next week or maybe a week after. So I de I'll definitely try to put a lot of effort in this. And I hope a lot of people will be able to benefit from it. Uh, well, I also thought I should use the interview opportunity to just, you know, shout out. Please subscribe to my channel. Make sure not yeah, to forget. Of course. <laughs> but, yeah, I've been, I've been hoping someone would start a chess YouTube channel. 
No, I'm, yeah. just, I'm, I'm just kidding. Obviously, the, there's chess content ev everywhere. But but if you put out a good product, obviously, uh, you know, an audience will find it. Yeah, I would hope so, especially now that I do have some audience already, some <laughs> pretty loyal audience from all of my courses. So Yeah, you've been requested as a guest um, several times. People have, I don't know if, I can't remember offhand if it's your students or just fans of your, your work on Chessable, but but definitely enough that, that a few people had dropped me a line saying, get Yuri in there. Yeah, well, that's very flattering to hear. <laughs> Hopefully now they're getting an interesting interview. Yeah, I think so. And and Yuri, I just had one or two more questions for you, mainly relating to like um, how you're acclimating to life in St. Louis and the United States generally. So, I mean, it sounds like you did it for professional slash academic reasons, primarily decided to make your way to the U.S. I mean, it probably helps that you have some fellow Ukrainian chess players there and other international chess players that can form like a support network. But are you generally finding life comf comfortable in St. Louis? Uh, yeah, actually, definitely am. Well, this year, really, there has been no uh, acclimatization or, you know, getting used to it. Well, last year I moved here and it definitely felt <laughs> felt quite interesting, quite an interesting cultural experience because definitely so many things were different in America, starting from mentality, ending up with, well, say I come from a city which has a population of about 5 million and we only use public transport. I mean, we use cars as well, but say I, I didn't really. But here in St. Louis, you cannot even survive without a car. And yeah, I mean, so many things are different in so many ways. But yeah, generally, actually, interestingly, even before I came to America, see, most of my students happen to be from America. So actually, I can say I probably have some acquaintance or some friend in like literally every single state <laughs> in most big cities. So actually, it didn't really feel like going to some unexplored or totally unfamiliar place. It felt like going to a certain degree to a very familiar place. And this year... I just somehow booked a ticket like three days before I flew flew out or like four days before and just came and starting from day one, I just felt that was another home. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's good to hear. And yeah, the, the driving culture can definitely take getting used to for, I mean, not just if you're from Kiev, Ukraine, but if you're from any big city and then you move to, um, like I, I felt the same way. I grew up in Center City, Philadelphia. And when I went to college, if you wanted to leave the campus, you needed a car. And yeah, that, that wasn't my favorite aspect of college. Yeah, definitely. But indeed, this is actually, I'm starting to like it. <laughs> Did you get a car? Uh, oh, not yet, but I'm hopefully about to, maybe also within a week or two. So that's another, yeah, uh, another plan. With the, uh, with, with the vast riches from your chessable successes. <laughs> well, hopefully so. <laughs> <laughs> good, good to hear. Um, and uh, do you, I mean, again, it's sort of an awkward time to be asking with the virus going on, but had you found anything that you, you like doing for fun in St. Louis? Um, uh, you know, when you, back when we could like do things for fun? Well, I actually think, especially here in this more of a rural type of area, it's still possible to do so many things for fun. You know, I think it's been mostly big cities with some um, cultural life that suffered, like saying, you know, bigger cities, some theaters would be closed or, I don't know, museums would be closed or some art galleries would be closed or whatever exhibitions or, I don't know, concerts or whatever type of things you might want to do. But actually in places like this, I definitely think it's possible to, you know, travel around quite a bit, explore things, possibly go on some road trip or to nature. So, I mean, in that regard, I definitely don't think that it's been affected like nearly almost at all. Well, I would say that, you know, the favorite type of leisure of most people who would listen to this playing over the board has suffered. But yeah, <laughs> okay, that's that's also, I think, hopefully going to recover. In fact, 
the the uh, in-person tournament have been already taking place at really at a full steam in Europe, uh, especially within the European Union. But hopefully in America it will start happening too. But yeah, I definitely cannot complain about being bored. In fact, my <laughs> friend was even joking a day or two before when I told him, "So okay, so today I need to finish this. I need to get done with my assignment and finish a course and publish something else and write something else and teach a few lessons." He said, "Well, you're never getting bored. Probably the only way for you to get bored is to schedule it." Today, I'm bored from 1 a.m. or 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Yes, so I'm definitely not complaining in this regard. Good. Glad to hear it. Yeah. And and speaking of uh, tournaments coming back, did you hear that FIDE announced that they're going to attempt to resume the candidates in, I think it's November? Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah, I've heard of it. I believe they're not sure yet if it's taking place in Yekaterinburg or Tbilisi, Georgia. Uh, But yeah, well, I mean, it's just a hard time, really. You... Perhaps it's pretty hard or unnecessary to blame people for making decisions that seem, you know, weird or weak in hindsight, because we just don't have, or especially back then in March where they interrupted it, we just didn't have enough information. It's just a totally new challenge. So people just act like, you know, to the best of their ability. Even so, obviously, in hindsight, it feels pretty weird to start a tournament, right? Why would you start it in the first place? Or if you start it, you have to finish it. But yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I have absolutely no idea of how this will turn out. And most importantly, it's not even a thing whether it will take place in November, but who will win and how people will perceive this. Because mm-hmm. if someone who was in a great shape wins, you know, again, I mean, the, you know, has another has another great, great uh, seven rounds, people will say, well, maybe he would have gotten tired. Maybe he would have run out of novelties. Maybe he would have, I don't know, collapsed mentally. And now he had the time to adjust. If we have a person who was an outsider win or who was in the middle, people will say he was in such a bad shape and now he got a, ch- got a chance and it's unfair towards the previous leaders. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, the main problem here is that both FIDE and, uh, I mean, generally, yeah, mostly FIDE will be under quite a bit of, you know, uh, public pressure in this regard, no matter how the tournament ends. And it's really hard to suggest like what they can do about this. But yeah, I mean, obviously as a fan, I would be greatly interested in seeing the games and hopefully the players will get to to, to, to be quite creative and play well under the circumstances. But yeah, there's just really not, nothing I guess we can say about this. Yeah, and of course, no matter what they do now, there's no undoing the sort of original sin with Rajabov not being able to participate. I mean, I know some people are still vocal online about some sort of way to get him back in, but there's no way to do that that's also fair to the people who did participate. So, um, I yeah, I'm I'm afraid we just, this, like you say, this one is just going to be imperfect, but hopefully it gets us a world championship matchup and they can get things right the next world championship cycle. Yeah, hopefully so. Even so, probably our job of here actually is the least of the problems. If we, I mean, because as far as I know, they've reached a deal with Fidesz that he'll play in the next candidates, no matter what, he has a spot. So, I mean, if he's satisfied with it, I mean, probably that's quite okay. And I mean, maybe actually it's even a good turnout for him, you know? <laughs> because, yeah. yeah. But probably people who are under most pressure now are probably, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know. I wanted to say the leaders, Vashila, Graf, and Nipomnishi, but maybe outsiders too, because how to prepare now if you have two points less and there are only seven rounds to go. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, most likely actually Rajabov in a way even came out as a winner out of this situation. Yeah. Although I haven't heard it a hundred percent official that, that he has a deal for the next one is so I, I'm, are you, are, I just want listeners to know that that may or may not be confirmed. I do think that that would be a fairly equitable thing to do, but I'm not a hundred percent sure um, about the next candidates. Um, so we'll, we'll try to chase that down. And, 
and look forward to to more coverage of the candidates, of course, here on Perpetual Chess. But but thanks for the the insights about that and for all of your insights about chess improvement and the Evans Gambit. Um, so Yori, we got your plug in for your your soon to be revived YouTube channel. We've got your chessable course. I know you're on Twitter. What else do listeners need to know if they would like to reach out to you or if they would like to keep up with what you're doing? Well, speaking of what I'm doing, yeah, actually, uh, several more pieces of uh, chess literature or information are coming out. So yesterday, for example, I've just finished another survey for a new chess yearbook and sent it out. And I'm definitely publishing a lot, a lot, a lot more. Uh, Now we're about to publish several more books with Thinkers Publishing. Something's already written and about to, to get published. Something is still in the works or I'm just about starting to write it. But yeah, I would definitely say that a lot more exciting things are coming up. So definitely stay tuned. And hopefully uh, there would be soon, well, <laughs> even though I'd not get my expectations too high, but hopefully there'd be no more products from FIDA Master, Yuri Krikon, hopefully it will be International <laughs> Master. But yeah, definitely stay tuned. And I would definitely say that, yeah, it's, it's been, to be honest, very exciting. I, I find the whole process of sharing knowledge uh, very interesting because, see, the thing is, uh, you know, we say in Russian, I think people say this in English too, if you don't like something, I mean, the way something's being done or the way something is done, just do it yourself or redo it yourself, you know? So as I'm teaching, I come across so many good pieces of chess literature or, you know, sources where students can grasp knowledge from. But also, probably it's not, you know, because I'm perfect or, you know, much better as an author, but probably just every author has his own vision. So I would just definitely, in every book, I would say I disagree with some things, you know, or in most books. So I just feel that when I get to write, I just feel that I get to help hopefully more people improve and and share some of some of my insights. So yeah, it's definitely a very, very exciting process to be honest, to be sharing all this knowledge and experience. Cool. Yeah. And the, the amount of output is impressive too, Yuri. I don't know. I don't know how you do it while in graduate school, no less. Although I guess, as you've said, a, a quarantine does help. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the most important part is I think the quality of output, not the amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> true. As long as people are happy about quality, I guess, yeah, having a large amount is also a good idea. Yeah, as long as you don't sacrifice uh, quality for quantity. Um, okay, well, well, Yori, this has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you again for the interview. Yeah, and I look forward to to maybe chatting again someday about whatever twenty five new things you'll have released along with uh, with your your likely IM title at some point. Yeah, I definitely hope so. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been very enjoyable, and I would definitely say, say I've. See, I've, I've heard, I've seen, not sure what's the right word, word to use here, a lot of your podcast, and I definitely found both the questions and people present very interesting. So it's definitely a huge honor to be here. And yeah, hopefully the interview would come out enjoyable and interesting and uh, somewhat, you know, uh, in, yeah, well, ed- ed- educational for, 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 for the listeners. And I would definitely be very, very happy to catch up some, some, sometime soon again. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Yuri. Thank you so much. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. You can spread the word via word of mouth or positive reviews on podcast platforms. We are up to 98 written reviews on Apple Podcasts, and only one of them aggravates me. Amazing support. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1, or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview 
You should also check out the Perpetual Chess Instagram page. But more than anything, I want to express my gratitude to those who provide financial support to the show. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable.com for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to help sustain and improve the show. And while they're at it, find out about future guests and send in some great questions. So without further ado, I'd like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog, the Apprentice Twitch channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Andy Ryerson, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Drake Domingue, I am Eric Rosen, Firas Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harfst, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Leela engine analysis, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdnays Twitch channel, Peter Sadi, the Play More Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Robert Coucher, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stenix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Beam, and I would also like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anidi Deer, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explain, Coach J's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, FM, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letarte Lavoie, Frank Tortoris MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovac, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Horland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Stranad, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reiforth, Laura Bojowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Arispide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solomon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat, 
Milad Janov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalvo, Richard Hollenbach, Robert Turner, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube Channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tata of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Kolmanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Storyanov. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.